When you're an investor of a certain age, there are two reasons for getting interested in aged care companies, as an investor and potentially as a client. My own interest as a client is for my mother, who's currently in the retirement village waiting room, next stop, aged care. But I'm speeding towards my turn as well. So I thought it was time to consult Cam Ansell, one of Australia's aged care experts, both for his view on the providers as investments and as nurturers of our parents and eventually ourselves. I started by observing that the three main listed aged care companies, Estia, Japara and Regis, have had a terrible 12 months and asking him what's going on. With the ageing of the population, aged care is supposed to be a one-way bet. I think they've had a bit of a, a mix of fortune. Certainly they took off with a, with a bang when they, uh, when they first started. I think uh, many are attracted to the certainty associated with um, uh, government-funded services. I guess the, the flip side of that is what happens when the government decides to, uh, to claw back funding. And I think we've seen uh, a substantial change in, in sentiment over that uh, the first six months, I think, of that 12-month period where the uh, budget announcements last year resulted in, a, in quite, a, quite a cut to government funding. So that's been a big influence, I think, on, on the share prices. It's interesting that Estia in particular, but also uh, Regis, to some extent, their share prices fell quite heavily around about uh, August, September, which was well after the budget. Um, was it because the investors didn't really come to grips with what the budget meant and it took a while for that to sink in? Yeah, it's a really good point, Alan. I think uh, we actually had Estia um, uh, representatives come out sort of saying, look, this doesn't impact upon us. And, uh, and I think that took place at around about the time we had released our report to say that it was going to have a material impact across the sector, full stop. So it did take a while to to do the interpretation of exactly how much that impact was going to be. I think one of the positive things that came out of it is the sector banded together and a fair bit of modelling was done to demonstrate that the government had overshot in terms of the savings that the uh, budget targets were going to achieve. They eased back a little bit on, on some of those cuts. But I think on the positive, it's also created a, a level of innovation from the listed companies and from other providers to look for new ways to strengthen their revenue areas and control costs wherever they can. I guess the reason that people like the look of them or think about investing in this area is, is another thing that you've been doing a lot of work on, which is the ageing of the population and what that means. And you would have thought that investing in aged care and retirement villages would be you know, almost a one-way bet given what's going on. But as you say, they're vulnerable to government funding cuts. But looking at the sort of the demographic changes, I mean, are the fundamentals still OK and good for these companies? I think they are. I think, and in fact, in a strange sort of a way, the less dependence we have on uh, government funding, the greater the opportunity for these organisations to prosper. And so we have at the moment a situation where we have around about five taxpayers for every um, retired Australian. And over the next couple of decades, that'll drop to about 2.7 taxpayers. And so it's inevitable that there's going to be a tightening around the level of government funding. And the balance will be that we as consumers are going to be expected to pay more ourselves. Uh, and in doing that, we tend to become uh, have much greater expectations about what it is that we get. And so large organisations and small organisations that are innovative and, and work well to that, that can cater for our needs in the future, they'll have less exposure to these shifts in government policies and tightening at, at times that are difficult to predict. 
Can you give us a bit of a picture of the demand and supply forecasts, the outlook, uh, looking at the pipeline for new beds over, say, the next five to ten years, and and how you, how you think that goes against what's likely to be the demand? So at the moment, the Department of Health uh, anticipates that there will be a need for about 74,000 additional beds. To put that into context, there's around about 190,000 of them at the moment. Um, that's just over the next eight years. So that's going to require an investment of around about $30, $32 billion. So it's a huge amount of investment. And I guess in line with some of the uh, movement we saw in the in the share prices, there has been a slowdown somewhat in, in some of that level of investment. Um, but So we are not moving quickly enough to be able to, to meet it. But it's a huge number of additional beds projected. Um, one of the things that makes it very exciting just at this time is it's not a one-dimensional analysis. It's not just around residential aged care. Um, generally speaking, older people will prefer to remain at their homes as, as long as possible. And part of the government's Living Longer, Living Better uh, legislation has seen a relaxing of some of the supply constraints around home care. And so generally speaking, people will prefer to access those home care services as long as they can, which means if, they, if it's not safe for them to be at home or their care needs are, are so acute that, that they can't be looked after in their homes, it's that point that they go into residential aged care. Are you saying that some of the government's legislation will actually reduce demand for residential aged care? Yeah, look, I think it will. I think over time, particularly in the areas that we see the, the lower level support for people in residential aged care, most of the listed operators are dealing in the higher acuity and people who have a high level of functional dependence and need a lot of support. So that side of demand will be high. And the sheer number of people coming through the system will mean that demand for residential aged care will always grow. But I believe proportionally home care services will get uh, greater demand. And for smart retirement village operators that are able to accommodate people for longer in their own homes, I think that's where we'll start to see big or exponential growth in demand. Nevertheless, it does sound like you're saying that supply of beds will fall short if uh, so much requirement is there Yes, and uh, investment needed, but they're not actually coming up with the money. So uh, how We're not building fast enough at this stage, but um, it certainly has improved over the last few years. But but if there's a shortfall in supply, how sensitive are prices then to, to the equation? Is it possible for the providers to actually increase their prices? Uh, Yes, they do. I mean, generally speaking, the most flexibility you have in pricing reflects the quality of the nursing home that you're operating. And so if you are uh, operating a nursing home that has a great reputation and you have uh, great resident amenity, privacy, then those homes are are generally able to to command stronger pricing. What tends to happen in, in those environments where we get better at providing services at home, as the Kiwis do in New Zealand, their average length of stay, the amount of time that people stay in in their nursing homes is actually much shorter than than in Australia. And what tends to happen is the demand for those good quality homes increases and the older dated homes tend to become redundant faster. You had an interesting chart in your report about uh, profit or EBITDA, that's earnings before interest, tax, depreciation and amortisation per bed per annum uh, of each of the three aged care providers, Regis, Estia yes. and Japara, yeah. um, and there's a difference between them in that Japara is quite a bit lower than the others, and, and they're all below what 
is the ACFA or Aged Care Financing Authority's top quartile. So it seems that the three listed providers are actually not making as much money as the private ones. It's important just to look into a little bit more detail about why some of that is. There's some important differences in the way they operate. Some of them will be working, uh, Regis, for example, works very hard towards, and Japara work very hard towards long-term sustainability. Sometimes that means that you are renovating homes or building new ones. And to have a constant pipeline of um, redeveloped and refurbished homes, you need to have some business interruption. And that does result in a dampening of, of some of your returns. The other things that these guys are doing, Estia in particular, is that they are growing through acquisition. And every time they acquire a new home or a portfolio of homes, they need to integrate those services into their core functions. And so that does have an impact. If they are acquiring homes that are already reporting a a, a low performance, they'll need to bring them on board, they'll need to bring them into their systems, and they'll need to help make them more profitable and ideally improve outcomes for residents. So it's different comparing a, a single home that's been around for a long time, that's stable, good staff base, strong revenue to an organisation that is growing, accumulating um, new resourcing and expanding all the time. Are all three of them consolidators or is it just mainly Estia? Uh, look, they've all been consolidating to an extent. I think it's been probably 2014, 2015, there were more, more opportunities for, for acquisition, I think, with the Living Longer, Living Better changes. I think a lot of organisations sort of looked at themselves in the mirror and, and made a decision. Are we, are we going to go into this? Are we going to face this brave new world of competition and increased consumer choice? Or are we going? And some of those organisations made the decision to, to leave. And at that time, uh, all three of them were quite active in, in expanding. Japan and Regis have been around for a long time, so Estia particularly had a mandate for expansion because it really grew from expansion from, from 2014. Since then, it's been uh, somewhat quiet, so there have been less opportunities for acquisitions and, and their consolidation has been taking place generally with, with smaller acquisitions of one to three homes at a time. I imagine that it's still a very fragmented industry, though. Very much. Just look at the profile of of the industry, Alan. There's about 1,000 providers out there and and about 2,700 nursing homes. So you take some of the bigger operators out there and and most of the providers are are operating one or two homes. So I think the opportunity for consolidation is is huge. And I think the the amount of M&A activity we're seeing over the last six months sort of shows that it's starting to move forward again. And are there decent benefits from scale for those who, who do grow through acquisition? Yes. Look, I think there's places for both. I think um, as we move forward, um, particularly with tightening of the subsidy arrangements, being able to share resources across geographic regions, the complexity of the care needs of a lot of the people that are being cared for in, in, in nursing homes is, is quite acute. So being able to have clinical resources and strong governance processes across geographical regions and across portfolios I think is important and being able to address competition in different areas where you might have someone building a new home across the road um, and having to wear that across a portfolio rather than being subjected to big knocks and swings by by having a a single operation. Having said that, um, some of the most profitable and successful operators are those that do run small operations. They are ones that are very focused around um, the client outcomes and they live by reputation. 
and we see a lot of those examples in, in family-run business where the, uh, the owners become uh, very attuned to the financial consequences of the decisions that they make. Are you also looking at retirement villages and the, the retirement village industry, and in particular the listed retirement com- village companies? Yeah, now more than ever. The, the, uh, in February this year, the government uh, started a big step of its uh, relaxation around supply controls on home care services. That has a, a big impact, I think, for retirement village operators. I think while you mentioned earlier that it, it should be a, a sure bet in terms of an ageing population, the numbers are certainly ageing, but the expectations and the profile of the people within this next big uh, explosion is, is really quite different. This is a generation that are the architects of consumer choice and to an extent expecting them to fit into the jam jars of the services that we've offered offered historically is unrealistic. And so for retirement village operators, if they are offering nothing but real estate, uh, then some of them are going to be endangered. Ones that are able to uh, help people uh, address their, their care needs as they get older without them being defined by their disability have an opportunity to really uh, prosper in this market. And so we're seeing um, market leaders like, like Aveo and, and Ingenia coming up with new models that have care services overlaying their real estate offering. And I think for retirement village operators in the future to remain relevant and, and to be of interest to the next generation, to my parents, I think they're going to be able to, or they're going to need to move away from that very property-focused service offering to be able to allow people to, to uh, access those services without being inconvenienced or having to move again. And you're saying that Aveo and Ingenia are doing that? I think a, a number of the uh, smaller and larger uh, retired village operators are, are seeing that and seeing the opportunity but also seeing the threat that um, uh, for them to move forward with traditional um, property-based models is, is, is going to be problematic. I, I'm not sure that the next generation of consumers will be um, attracted to being in a community of older people, particularly when a lot of us are in denial. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Perfectly true. I've always thought where I'd like to live when I get really old is next to a primary school. So, so I've got kids around me rather than old people. Yeah, it's, it, that's actually a fascinating point. We spend, we spend a lot of time looking for uh, opportunities to build nursing homes close to you know, beautiful views of oceans and rivers and those sorts of things. But actually, um, in my experience, the, the, the best opportunities are those where you can get them around movement and activity. So as you say, schools, kindergartens, daycare centres, um, parks, playing centres, I think, I think actually that, that, that's a really good point. That's what we want to be able to see, movement, activity. What do you think of the retirement villages where you just buy the house and you rent the land and get access to the pension rent subsidy? Uh, yeah, for some people that will be an attraction and uh, there are operators that that is their core sort of model. People that have uh, limited financial means, I think, are going to be attracted to that. We do sort of talk about the baby boomer generation as if you know it is made up of people who have great wealth. Actually, the, the profile is not that inconsistent with where we are today. There are plenty of people, uh, plenty of people who, who do have limited financial means. So I think manufactured parks... Um, uh, land leases and, and rental villages will, will continue to, to have a place and, and, uh, and be attractive, particularly if you can access supplementary funding and, and, uh, and, and pensions. There have been uh, some controversies over the years, uh, sometimes 
pushed by myself uh, yeah. about the contracts that you the people sign when they go into retirement villages <laughs> with uh, yeah. deferred management fees in particular. Yes. What's your advice to people who may be approaching that or, or yep. are dealing with parents who are moving into retirement villages? How should one approach it? I think, I think it's a great example of where we need to start changing the way that we offer our products compared to, to historically. The deferred management fee, the exit fee, um, the, this lease for life contract, you know, after 20 years, I still find it extremely complicated. For someone that's faced with this situation for the very first time, it's got to be a really daunting experience. Um, being providing better explanation of what it is that people are actually paying for is going to be absolutely crucial. We are seeing a, a, a number of uh, village operators starting to change the way they market their services and actually starting to look at providing choice to people when they come in. And so the profile and the expectations of people will change dramatically. In our experience, people with a high level of affluence have a high attachment and a strong priority to ownership values. And so there are ways of structuring contracts to enable them to participate more in the capital gain and the ownership of the house that they're moving into, the unit they're moving into. Other people are more drawn towards security and certainty, particularly people that might uh, have less financial resources or might be frail and in need of, of care services. Uh, and so I think it's absolute priority that we start being um, more flexible and responsive to, to different people's needs and also just try and make this regime less less complicated. Uh, in 2010, the, the, the Property Council did, uh, did research with us that found that one of the biggest prohibitive elements of people not moving into a retirement village was the complexity of the lease for life or the loan lights uh, contract and the deferred management fee arrangements. It's, it, it's something that we need to get better at. And moreover, it's difficult to compare retirement villages because they're all different. Yes, they are. And, and they do call the exit fees and the deferred management fees different things. So I think having, having greater consistency is, is really important. But I do think in many regards people underestimate the value that you do get from retirement living services. Often people will compare their house to a unit in a retirement village without understanding the benefits associated with having the common services and the access to the, to the shared amenities. And so I think that's around how people um, and the industry itself markets itself to, for, for people to find out just what, what that value is. But is there any type of contract that you reckon people should avoid, like the plague? I mean, is there anything you would say, here's a key pitfall you should watch for? Yes. Well, I think people who don't, don't consider carefully the impact of the deferred management fee. And so a deferred management fee essentially takes a charge out of your deposit based on the length of time that people stay in the units. And where there is limited choice, I have seen examples of very aggressive deferred management fees, sometimes as high as 60%. And if people are not understanding... The, 60% the, of what? 60% of their entry contribution. And so you can be left with a very small amount at, at the end of it. The other thing that I think people are moving more towards as well is allowing residents to share in, in capital gains. And sometimes that means that the deferred management fee attaches to the sale price, the exit price when they leave. And that in many circumstances, particularly in areas like New South Wales at the moment where property prices have been strong, quite often that can help them to, to ensure that, that that initial nest egg that they put into their deposit, uh, much of it can be returned. I suppose it's 
to some extent comes down to a decision of how much you uh, want to fund your retirement living uh, out of the kids' inheritance. Yeah, that's right. I, <laughs> I think, and I'm not sure whether or not that's a priority that's becoming more important or, or will become more important with the next generation. One of the drivers for moving into retirement accommodation for many is that they, they get the opportunity to unlock the value of their homes. And so on average, your, your accommodation within a retirement village might be two-thirds of what the median house price might be. And so if I can unlock some of that value uh, to be able to move into that and, and enjoy a, a better quality of life from having access to that capital. But about 90% of seniors of people over 65 have um, excess base within their homes. And so many of them are living in family homes long after the, the children have moved. That does have a, a wider impact on, on communities where it becomes very difficult for younger families to move into suburbs. And so being able to provide accommodation for older people um, that can help to, to address their, their desires to be able to access their capital, but also their longer-term care needs, does create a great opportunity more broadly for younger families as well. Well, it would increase the supply, which is what the government's talking about, uh, for making housing more affordable. Absolutely. Uh, there is also an argument about um, uh, public housing as well. A, a large proportion of, of people receiving support in, in public housing are older as well, and quite often that, that they have long stays in public housing, and the public housing tends to be more generic and, and not built for the older persons. And so I think there are a number of tiers of retirement living and aged care services yet to evolve in this market, which again is, is what, why I think just at this point now it, it is just such an exciting industry. Just briefly explain to us the bond situation sure. with nursing homes now. Yeah, sure. So a bond or a refundable accommodation deposit, when you decide to move into a, into a nursing home, uh, you have the choice of deciding whether you want to make a, a, an entry contribution, a refundable accommodation deposit, or pay a daily fee like a rent. It's a little bit like buying or, or, or renting a house. And so you have the choice of making that decision. The providers are required to advertise the costs of the deposits. You will pay that deposit to the, to the provider when you go into the home and at the end of your stay or when you pass away, the entire amount will be passed back to your estate or to your children. Is it always a choice? I had an idea that with a lot of nursing homes, it's not a choice. You have to pay a bond and then you also pay a daily amount. Now, you have the choice and you can pay a combination. So you can pay a lump sum plus a lower rent amount. It just depends on your circumstances. But, you know, it's legislated that you are given the choice to either make pay a accommodation deposit or a, a DAP, a rental amount. If you have uh, any restrictions or resistance to your choice, the majority of operators are, are very flexible with that and they should be. I've been speaking to Cam Ansell of Ansell Strategic, a specialist aged care consultancy.